Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Informed Traveler podcast, a weekly travel podcast show where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. So if you're like many people, you probably like to check out those hotel review websites like TripAdvisor to research a hotel you're thinking of booking. But can you really believe what some of the reviews really say? And how do you tell the difference between a real review and a fake one? Well, a little later on in the podcast, we'll chat with travel advocate Christopher Elliott to help us answer that question and discuss the problem of fake hotel reviews. Plus, we'll also talk to the author of a new book out called Strange 66, a look at the creepy, seedy, and weird tales of the famous Route 66 in the U.S. But first, Aeroplan has been in the news a lot lately, rejecting a bid from Air Canada and joining up with Porter Airlines, among other things. So joining us now to sort out some of the new alliances and changes and what all that means for Aeroplan customers is Patrick Soika. He is the founder of Rewards Canada. The website is Rewards rewardscanada.ca. Hi, Patrick. Hello, Randy. Always a pleasure being on your show. Always a pleasure. Anytime we want to talk about uh, any kind of rewards with uh, credit cards or in travel rewards, uh, you're the guy. So let's uh, iron out this mess between uh, Aeroplan and Air Canada and all our former partners and new partners. And uh, I guess their parent company is Amia, right? That's right. Yes. So what's going on? All right. So, of course, there's lots of news. We can, we've talked about it before on your show, but going back to, to May of last year, it's when basically Air Canada announced this, that they're not renewing the partnership with AMIA for the Aeroplan program. We're going to start their own program. Mm-hmm. And fa- fast forward a little over a year from that, in late July of this year, we have Air Canada, along with TD, CIBC, and Visa, um, making an unsolicited offer to buy Aeroplan. And make that the loyalty program of Air Canada. <laughs> yeah, like it just—it's just, it, just mind-boggling. But, but it really makes sense because Air Canada reached out to, I think, something like thirty thousand of their members. And I think the biggest takeaway they got is you're going to have a lot of their heavy hitters, their frequent flyers, people traveling every day, every other day, you mm-hmm. know, earning literally millions of miles every year on, you know, with the program and who are sitting on big balances. We're talking six or seven figure aeroplan mile balances uh-huh. that, su- that suddenly come July, 2020 are going to be having to start with scratch in the new Air Canada program. So here they are, you know, point millionaires in one program and poppers in a new program where they won't be able to use those millions of miles that they've been trying to accrue to use on Air Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so Air Canada saw this as an opportunity. Well, if we buy them back, you know, then the, the, our, our top revenue earners will be very happy and be able to use their miles on our airline. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, eight days later, Amy came back after some negotiations and said, no, we're not, you know, we're not accepting the deal. Um, it is possible they're still talking. They said they're open to negotiations. So there may be negotiations going on behind the scene. But yeah, really, it was Air Canada trying to save face with um, some of their biggest revenue generators, the people who would be key to starting their new program as well. So what does this mean now for Aeroplan customers? I mean, uh, what happens in 2020? Just review. Right. So come 2020, Aeroplan becomes just a standalone coalition program, which it already is, except it has this special tie to Air Canada and Star Alliance through Air Canada um, for access to seats and flights. Um, Come July 2020, that partnership ends. But Aeroplan has already announced that they would allow you to use your miles to book any flight at any time. So essentially what they'll have is an online or you can call in 
um, almost like travel agency, and you can book any flight you want. It could be on Air Canada, it could be on WestJet, Iceland Air, United, you name it. Um, and then you could redeem your miles for that flight, or even a portion miles, portion cash if you don't have enough miles. So, so basically, the, the program come July 2020 becomes even more flexible because if there are seats available on any flight, you can book them with your Aeroplan miles. People with Aeroplan points now, can they carry over those tw- those in 2020 or do they have to use them up and then start fresh? Absolutely not. They will carry over. Aeroplan really? Will, change, will not change at all with that. So, so for a lot of people I've been advising, um, especially those who do redeem for economy class or don't earn a lot of miles, there's no need to rush out there and use those miles. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you really won't see a change. In fact, I think it's going to become more, if Aeroplan sticks to what they're saying, it's going to become more flexible for you than it is now. You will be able to get flights, the flights you want on the days you want. It may not be on Air Canada, but it yeah. might be on another airline. Mm-hmm. So that's the redemption side. Now, the uh, earning point side, they uh, signed a deal with Porter, which is a regional airline down east, doesn't really help us out west, does it? That's correct, yeah. They're flying out of mainly out of uh, Toronto's Billy Bishop you know, Island Airport there right outside of downtown, flying to Montreal, Ottawa, um, the Maritimes, uh, northeastern U.S. Um, really, I saw that as a, as a direct attack on Air Canada and WestJet as uh, Porter tries to compete against both those airlines on the Eastern Triangle, on the Eastern U.S. flights. And by having Aeroplan behind them, it's strength for Porter and vice versa. That just may sway a couple people from not going to the new Air Canada program or going to WestJet Rewards. They'll stick with Aeroplan because they already have the big balances. They're mm-hmm. used to the program and they'll fly on Porter. And then, you know, a week after Porter, they announced the same type of partnerships with Air Transat and with Flair Airlines. Yes. Um, so, so now you can you'll be able to earn and burn aeroplan miles on Air Transat, which again appeals to the the broader um, spectrum of aeroplan members, the people like you and I who are just earning a mile here, a mile there, who yeah. are flying every every day of the week. Um, so you got those sun destination options, the the European destination options, Flair Airlines, more of a Western based airline, even though they fly out mm-hmm. as well. Just airplanes really opening up a lot of doors with a lot of different options for their membership base that they know that they are going to need to attract, and that is the average Canadian aeroplan outside of that Porter deal. And if we don't get the one world deal, is going to lose. I, I don't know the exact numbers. Maybe a half million, maybe a million members who are the the high end yeah. earners, the people who do travel a lot, because they'll switch over to the anywhere Canada program. But you know that that's. That's upwards of only twenty percent of programs. You have eighty mm-hmm. percent of the program. See, that doesn't really matter as much to you. Very interesting stuff. Uh, always a pleasure chatting with you, Patrick Soiki. He's the founder of Rewards Canada. You can find the uh, blog all about Aeroplan, One World, Porter Airlines on the website RewardsCanada.ca. Thanks again, Patrick. Great. Thanks, Randy. So if you're like many people, you probably like to check out those hotel review websites like TripAdvisor to research a hotel you're thinking of booking. But can you really believe what some of the reviews are saying? And how do you tell the difference between a real review and a fake one? Well, to help answer that question and discuss the problem of fake hotel reviews is travel advocate Christopher Elliott. He joins us now. Hi, Christopher. Hey, how's it going? Very well, thank you. 
how did you stumble upon this problem? Uh, I, I think it's uh, the fake uh, travel review, hotel review, whatever is has always been there, but it's but you're saying it's getting worse. Uh, how did you manage to sort of stumble upon this? Well, you're absolutely right. Fake reviews have always been part of the whole user-generated review universe. But I heard from a reader uh, a couple of weeks ago who said that you know, he had he had been to a hotel in the Caribbean and had seen this review that looked awfully suspicious. And I looked into it and uncovered a whole lot of very disturbing things. And the worst of it was that we're up to now one out of every two reviews potentially being a fake, which is just ridiculous. Really? That is amazing. Yeah. Are there some websites worse than others? I know TripAdvisor is the one that always comes up, and I think TripAdvisor was uh, recently sued in Europe or uh, something like that, wasn't it, for uh, having fake reviews? Or that was Amazon, I think. They are all, They all have problems, and they're all trying to figure out how to deal with it. If you're traveling, then TripAdvisor is the big one. That's the 900-pound gorilla. But there are also you know, Yelp if you're going to a restaurant. That's a, a big one. And Amazon if you're dealing with any kind of a consumer electronics or, or book product. Um, so, And they all have people who come in. These are either employees of a competitor or a competitor or operatives who work for a reputation management company. And they come in there and they place these reviews on the site in order to make one business look better than another. Well, I'm, I'm just going to correct myself here. It was the Italian government that fined TripAdvisor $613,000 for publishing misleading information. That's directly from your article, by the way. Um, so, yeah, does that really matter to uh, companies uh, if they get fined or this or that? Yeah, see, the problem with that, with that one was um, the the verdict was actually overturned in Italy, and but there have been other countries that have sued and have have actually gotten TripAdvisor to comply with, you know, with making certain claims that it wasn't allowed to. I think um, in the UK there they were they had some claims they were making that they agreed to stop making, um, and and you know the fix is is, is not easy. Um, the the thing that they need to start doing is verifying that the person who is reviewing a hotel or a restaurant actually was a customer there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really easy to do that. All you have to do is require that um, they show a receipt. And if, if they can do that, then they can leave a review. And unfortunately, um, they, are, they refuse to do that because they say that um, it, it would be too much work, there's too many reviews, it's, it's impossible <laughs> to verify all of them. And I think that's just a cop-out. Yeah, exactly. I think so, too. I think if they really wanted to do it, they could do it. And a good review means a lot, doesn't it? If if a hotel gets a good review, uh, that can boost their ratings quite a bit, can't it? It leads to more customers, more revenue. It's it's good. It it leads to more bookings. And um, so they all want to have that four-star or five-star review and all of the glowing reviews. The problem is they're willing to do anything to get those reviews, including paying people and violating uh, what the rules are, which is that only customers get to leave reviews. Mm -hmm. And the flip side is uh, a bad review can also go a long way. And so you get the reverse that uh, Mm -hmm. uh, former employees, perhaps, or someone that has a grudge against a certain uh, hotel chain can write a bad review, even though they never stayed there. 
That's absolutely true. And, you know, again, it, this, is, this is an issue of people are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, it's up to these companies like TripAdvisor and Yelp to stop it. And uh, what we're seeing here is just a clear-cut case of where they're putting profits over people. They are, they're saying, hey, look, um, as long as people are still visiting our site, there's no problem. And, by the way, who is our competition anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, TripAdvisor basically has no competition. So they can do whatever they want to as long as they're not violating the law. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, that brings up another issue is there should be a law against it. There should be a law against lying online, but there <laughs> isn't. That would be, uh, yeah, what a novel idea. Uh, you do have some hints on your uh, blog, How to Spot a Fake. Uh, what's what's a person to do if they're uh, looking at some of the reviews? Well, one of the things you need to do is look for the very positive or very negative reviews. Usually if someone's leaving a one-star or a four-star review, it means that there's a fairly good chance that they are... Um, they're not legit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because some, someone who wants to lower your rating is going to come in and leave a one-star review in order to lower your rating. And um, so that's, a, that's usually a sign. The other one, too, is photos. You know, it's harder. It's easy to, to write something that's false. It's much harder to make up a photo. I mean, mm-hmm. it's possible, but, you know, so if someone is leaving a review with actual photos, that's usually a sign that it's, that it's good. The other thing that I say you should look for is superlatives. Anything ending with EST, that might be a sign that someone is, you know, in the marketing speak too, you have, if you've read tourism brochures, you've probably seen the, the, the flowery yeah. rhetoric that they use to describe their properties. Yeah. You know, if you see that, it's, it's a sign that they're probably uh, working off a script. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing I always look for is the photos. I look at the photos first, like the actual uh, traveler photos, and then you can you, it'll show which yeah. one, which uh, review person has taken the photos and look at those and eliminate the extremes, and then you might get a, a good idea what the place is like, right? The most important thing is never make a booking decision just based on the reviews on one site because they could be compromised. So as I say in my book, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler, you want to really triangulate, use four or five different sites, ask a friend, uh, go to an online travel site, to a review site. And if everything lines up, chances are it's a good property, it's worth staying in. But if you just make it based on what you see on TripAdvisor, you might be disappointed. He is the author of the book, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. His website is Elliot.org, and that's where you'll find the blog, The Fake Review Problem is Getting Worse. And he's Chris Elliott. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Chris. Likewise, thanks. Well, summertime is road trip season, and one of the more popular road trips you can take is along the famous Route 66 in the U.S. And now there's a new book out that allows you to explore some of the creepy, seedy, and weird tales of Route 66. It's called Strange 66, Myth, Mystery, Mayhem, and Other Weirdness on Route 66. And the author is Michael Carl Witzel. He joins us now. Hi, Michael. Morning, Randy. Uh, So, uh, you know, I suppose if you look 
hard enough. You can probably find weird and crazy stories about any major highway uh, anywhere in the world. But what is it about Route 66 in the U.S. that gives it its, its, its sort of mythical status, do you think? Well, you know, it used to be called America's Main Street. And, you know, back in the you know 50s and 60s, it was like the main highway where America took, you know, to go uh, east and west on vacation, you know, before the rise of the interstate highways. So a lot, a lot of stories, you know, have been cooked up along the way and over the years. So now, I guess we could just do a geographical lesson here for those who may not know where Route 66 ends and begins. So uh, let's uh, give our listeners a sort of geographical reference here, what Route 66 is. Yeah, it's, it's basically an east-west highway. Uh, well, it used to be a highway. Now it's, you know, it's been decommissioned, no longer a a main thoroughfare, um, you know, two lanes usually uh, ran from all the way from Chicago all the way out to uh, Santa Monica and California through eight eight different states, actually. And so you said it's decommissioned now. It's not a major highway. You can still drive on it, though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, you know, it's just now considered, in, you know, one of the old U.S. routes, you know, the, the ones that used to be uh, the main corridors before you had the, you know, so-called freeway with the, you know, off-ramps and on-ramps, that kind of thing. So have you visited all these places? How many times have you driven uh, up and down uh, Route 66? I haven't haven't seen all the places, but I've driven a lot of segments of Route 66. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty long route. I think it's like 2,300 miles or something like that. Well, it's full of all kinds of stories. Uh, give me a little bit of a history lesson now. We've, we've done a geographical lesson. When was it first built? And uh, it was, uh, as I understand, it was uh, the, the U.S.'s first major highway, right? Well, yeah, it started out when, you know, America, back during the 1910s and 1920s, when, uh, you know, America's roadways were just being developed. And, and back then, there was just a series of different trails in, in different parts of the United States. Uh, you had uh, the Ozark Trail, and you had a uh, different one going down from the East Coast in Florida. Uh, and these were just basically, you know, really not really highly developed roadways. And, uh, you know, that, that was sort of the environment that Route 66 came out of. So let's uh, talk a little bit about your book. Now, you've, you've done a good job of, uh, there's all kinds of photos, and uh, it's very colorful. Uh, it's broken up into, well, there's the killer on the road, mysterious and the uh, mysteries and the unexplained and structures and crazy uh, constructs. So is there any particular chapter that you kind of favor over the other ones that, with the stories? Uh, yeah, I, I sort of like uh, the different things that happened, uh, you know, as far as like on the road, uh, <clears throat> as far as one of the crazy things that uh, came up was during the 1960s, the Atomic Energy Commission in the U.S., they were trying to come up with a uh, peaceful use for uh, nuclear devices. And at the time, the Santa Fe Railroad was looking for a way to sort of blast the different uh, shorter route through the Bristol Mountains out in the Mojave Desert out in California. Mm-hmm. So they thought, hey, why don't we just use atomic bombs to blow blow the roadway through there? You know, (laughs) (laughs) seemed like a good idea. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Not thinking of the after effects of you know the fallout and the radiation. Of course, you know you couldn't drive on it for a few thousand years, but 
uh, you know, leave it to the American government to waste money. <laughs> well, everyone likes a good ghost story, too. So you've uh, got quite a few uh, ghost stories along the highway. Any particular one that stands out for you with that one? Oh, yeah, there's the Hotel Monte Vista. It's out there in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. It's one of these older style, you know, multi-story hotels. It's been there forever. And, uh, you know, over the years, so many ghost stories there have developed of, of different uh, different apparitions seen over the years. And, uh, and of course, food. There's lots of uh, restaurants along the way. The one that, that stands out for me is the uh, free 72-ounce steak. But this is actually in Texas. Is that actually part of Route 66? Yeah, it's actually in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, it, I, th- I think it's actually moved from the original location. It's probably more near Interstate 40, which took over, you know, the uh, Route 66 route. Uh, but it's still considered a Route 66 sort of stop. And that's, like you said, the free 72-ounce steak, the big Texan steak ranch. Uh, you, you go there, and basically they present you with this huge 72-ounce steak meal, you know, with the baked potato and the sides and, you know, all that. And if you can if you can eat the whole thing, basically it's free. So That's four and a half pounds of meat. You, <laughs> that's a yeah, lot of steak. Yeah, it's a lot of, you got to eat the fixings too. There's a salad and, you know, side dishes, things like that. Have so, you tried it? No, no, I would never, I would never try that much. I know, me neither. I couldn't do that either. <laughs> so now, what's been the feedback with uh, some of your readers that you've gotten from the book? Then some of the feedback's been pretty good. Yeah, a lot of people remember similar stories. You know, everybody's got the same experiences when driving across the U.S. You know, at night, you always run into different strange occurrences, especially things you know like the vanishing hitchhiker. You know, you've seen the famous, uh, you know, Twilight Zone episode. Mm-hmm. You pick up the hitchhiker, then you let him off, then a few miles later, there he is again, you know, ready to be picked up. Uh, so similar stories, you know, the man with the hook, you know, <laughs> with the hook is left dangling on your car. Uh-huh. All these basic uh, American folk tales, you know, down through the years. It's a similar stories because there's always the same experience on the road, you mm-hmm. know, like, well, there's lots of people. history, too, right? I mean, you know, your first chapter uh, talks about Al Capone, Jesse James, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, all these, uh, I, I would imagine, are, are historic uh, stops along the way, are they not? Right, right, yeah. Al Capone, of course, was out there in Chicago, and that's where Route 66 basically uh, begins. And it sort of runs a diagonal path uh, running outside of Chicago, so uh, Route 66 was sort of like his escape route out of town, you know, back then when it wasn't, you know, highly populated out mm-hmm. there. And, and he also had like different, he had a home there close by and he also had a sort of like a party crash pad uh, near Route 66 where, you know, they could all um, go out there and party and, and hide out basically. <laughs> and it seems that, uh, well, I'm, I'm getting the impression that a lot of the stops along the way on Route 66, uh, they've, they've kept the uh, history there, too. A lot of the historic artifacts are, are still there, right? Yeah, it's been a big resurgence in the past few years. Uh, you know, like in the 1970s, uh, Route 66 was pretty much dead, and then the traffic was, you know, really, really low. Uh, but then there was like a slow resurgence, you know, people started uh, writing books and there was more publicity coming out. Uh, and then over the years, you know, cities got involved with, uh, you know, helping restore monuments and, you know, famous sites. And, and now it's sort of like a become a destination in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of like restored areas and, 
you know, classic uh, areas that have been you know brought back to life. So it's 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 pretty cool uh, phenomenon. So now, other than using this as a guidebook, what tips would you have if I was planning a trip along Route sixty six? Well, you probably wouldn't want to do the whole route. You probably want to pick a uh, state or maybe a couple of states, and uh, you know you know do do that area. Uh, I'd also probably want to pick up, you know, maybe like one or two guidebooks. There's some really good books out there that uh, tell you the old route, the old uh, alignments and things mm-hmm. like that. Sometimes it's kind of hard to find when you're going through cities. Uh, the old roads have been taken over, you know, par- parts of them by the freeways. Uh-huh. Uh, it's kind of broken up in some areas. But there's some states where there's really long stretches, so... That's really good. Well, it's a fascinating book. Uh, lots of stories, lots of uh, colorful images. It's called R- Strange 66, Myth, Mystery, Mayhem, and Other Weirdness on Route 66. And Michael Carl Witzel is the author. Where can people get it, Michael? Oh, the best place probably be on the uh, trusty old Amazon.com. Well, thanks for your time, Michael. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Randy. Have a good day. And that's this week's Informed Traveler podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, take a minute and rate the show, leave us a review, and tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to drop me a line, my email address is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. And you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. And you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.